Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 5th of November 2017, and this is episode number 39. On this week's podcast, I talked to Nigel Atta about the Battle of Luz, 14-1915. Nigel has written a new book focusing on the role and experience of the 8th Battalion Lincolnshire Regiment during that engagement, which has recently been published by Hellion & Co. I spoke to Nigel over the interweb live from his home in Leicester. Nigel, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Can you uh, begin by giving us a brief background of how you became interested in the Great War? Yeah, hi Tom, uh, thanks for that. Simple answer really, um, I discovered my great-grandfather's service records on the internet um, and he was a uh, private in the 8th Lincolns and uh, from that moment onwards the First World War has been a part almost of every day since then and that was uh, uh, on the 95th anniversary of uh, the First World War and uh, I initially began researching his particular background and then taking you know a sort of greater interest in the first world war but uh, yeah the discovery of my great-grandfather's service records on the internet was uh, a life-changing moment for me so obviously you've written a book on the eighth lincolns which is your grandfather's uh, unit so why did you think a book was necessary on this battalion i, I, I as a part of um, developing my own interest in the first world war i went to birmingham university to undertake some postgraduate studies there and um, I think maybe the first or the second lecture that we had one of the professors uh, asked us for a research question and uh, I put my hand up and I said discuss the military effectiveness of the reserves at the Battle of Luce not knowing very much about it and he announced with all the authority that a professor can that they bolted. And for me, that was a, a shock and a bit of horror. I knew my great-grandfather had served in that unit. And so I was utterly determined to try and find out, to the best of my ability, what actually happened to the reserves and specifically to the 8th Lincolns. And uh, part of my reason for writing a book is that um, in actual fact I wanted to challenge the established view of contemporary historians that the general reserves behaved poorly at the Battle of Luce. So before we get on to exactly what the general reserves did and the 8th Lincolns got up to during the Battle of Luce, can you give us a bit of background on on what type of man joined up um, with the 8th Lincoln? Um, from, From my research I've been able to find about 60 service records uh, that have survived the Luftwaffe's bombing of the records office in the Second World War. Um, So there are about 60 ordinary ranks where their service records survive, and they are mostly men drawn from the industrial and agricultural uh, working classes. So these would be lads that uh, would have left school at 12 years old and gone into work. My own great-grandfather, for example, um, was an industrial labourer at a local factory in Grantham, Lincolnshire. Um, And uh, there are a number of men from Grantham that also enlisted at around about the same time as him. They also were industrial, working in industry, and just one of them actually had some previous service as a, a soldier in the Boer War, a chap called Chris Chalk, and he was made a, a colour sergeant major, just simply because he'd actually served in the army before. And when you actually look at these men, do they, are they drawn from a specific geographical part of Lincolnshire, or is their sort of residence is relatively broad? No, it is relatively broad, because I've 
on the attestation um, uh, form, you can see where they were born and where they uh, enlisted. So it is, you know, many of them came from, you know, quite small villages and towns. So we're looking at uh, Grantham, Lincoln, Bourne, you know, other other um, uh, Spalding, for instance. We have a scattering of men from uh, Derby, so they tend to be Derbyshire miners, and then a few chaps from London as well. So it's a broadly East Midlands representation. So obviously they, they fought at the Battle of Lewes. I wonder whether we could actually take a, a slight tangent and look at, at what the Battle of Lewes was. It's planning the British objectives and the historical controversies around that, which obviously form a key part of your book. Obviously, we've had the uh, earlier 1915 uh, actions of Nerve Chapelle and Aubers Ridge and Festiver. So by the time we get to the autumn of 1915, the British and the French are planning together to do a joint action. Uh, so the French uh, want to attack at Artois and uh, Champagne, and uh, they wanted the British to attack alongside the French 10th Army at Luce as a, uh, a coordinated combined offensive. Kitchener, who was uh, Secretary for State, instructed Sir John French that this must happen. He wanted to show that the French, that the British were you know, pulling their weight. And Kitchener, as famously recorded, has as saying, we must act with all of our energy and do our utmost to help the French, even though by doing so, we suffered very heavy casualties indeed. Uh, uh, that's true, but he also had in mind supporting the Russian army, who were being really roughly handled by the uh, Germans and Austro-Hungarian armies uh, on the Eastern Front. So the sort of political context is one of the you know, British army uh, being the junior partner in a coalition warfare, that we must be seen to be pulling our weight and supporting the French, and Kitchener being uh, you know, acting to the best of his ability to keep the Russians in the war by offering an offensive on the Western Front. So British attack, and I don't think I'm giving anything away to say, it wasn't the most successful action that the British were involved in on the Western Front. And there was a, number, there was a range of historical controversies that you alluded to earlier, especially around the use of the reserve divisions, which I think were the 21st and 24th divisions, if I'm correct. Uh, that's true, but plus also the Guards Division. So you will see historians talk about the Kitchener battalion, uh, divisions, 21st and 24th divisions, as a disaster waiting to happen, um, that they were routed, that they bolted, and that 8,000 men were killed in a single hour. Well, I think the casualties were about right, but I'm not quite sure how that particular historian knew they were all killed within 60 minutes. The other controversy, of course, um, for the reserves is that their poor, if you, if you want to call it their poor performance, led to the dismissal of Sir John French. So that was, that was the big, I suppose, political outcome. Uh, and it, obviously Haig replaced him as, as, as chief of staff. So what, what, was the, what was the 8th Lincoln story at Lewes? So um, the 8th Lincolns uh, were formed September 1914. So men were recruited across the county and they gathered uh, at Lincoln. So first of all, uh, they, they, they gathered at, at Lincoln Racecourse and they were billeted at uh, the Lincoln Midlands Railway Sheds to put them under cover. And uh, then they moved south and um, were trained at Holton Camp. And uh, pretty much their training consisted most of route marches so they, they definitely knew how to march but not much else uh, one of the things that um, 
I discovered in my research was that the the men weren't they didn't get their uniforms until um, the spring of 1915. They were originally supplied with obsolete rifles and bayonets, and they was, those weren't replaced until June 1915. There was very little battalion, brigade, or division training, and so they they were really quite poorly prepared for overseas service. Um, Their officers tended to be young lads straight out of uh, university, um, the two Bosworth brothers from Northampton. They were explorers. uh, They they joined the 8th Lincolns. Sadly, both of those were killed uh, on the 26th of September. And the commanding officer was uh, a retired officer, Harold Walter. Um, Originally in 1914, according to his medal index card, he had been commanding a remount uh, unit and then gets pulled back to the UK to help out as second in command with the 8th Lincolns and um, and uh, eventually ends up as a temporary lieutenant colonel and takes the uh, 8th Lincolns over to uh, France on the 10th of September 1915 and the complement at that time was 28 officers and 993 men. Now, I think the critical thing here is that obviously they went into action around the 26th of September so they arrived in France and 16 days 16 days later they're in the in the heat of action so what happens once they arrive in france and what's their sort of journey up to the battlefield well that they are route they have route march um up to the battlefield so they have they're marching through the night because uh, they didn't want the germans to discover that these men were on the way and by the evening of the 24th of September, they are on the line in which Sir Douglas Haig had asked them to be. Uh, they're still under the command of Sir John French, but uh, they, they are at the precise point that uh, Haig had asked them um, to be, and uh, they're, they're ready for the off. But they are some five to eight miles behind uh, the British front line. So they actually have to make up this time. So once once the order is given that they, they are to deploy, I think if I'm if I'm if I read your book and I remember correctly, correctly their role was to attack the German second line after a reasonably successful day on the 25th of September. Yes that's right so on the 25th of September um, poison gas is released that's successful in some places but not in others it was described as a bloody balls up in some places where the wire was uncut but the 15th Scottish Division for instance actually captured the town of Luce and uh, went on and um, occupied uh, Hill 70 uh, to the north of it during this time on the on the 25th of September the 8th Lincolns along with all the other men in the 63rd Brigade, 21st Division, and also their sister division, the 24th Division, march off at around about 10.30, 11am on the 25th of September. And the 8th Lincolns actually get to uh, the point to where they had been directed at midnight on that day. So they'd actually been on their feet uh, um, from 10:30 in the morning until uh, uh, until midnight, uh, where they actually um, managed to find um, their their position, which was at that point currently held by Second Brigade, and these are positions around about Bois uh, Go, which is the the wood in the vicinity uh, to the north of of Luce, around uh, Chalk Pit, Chalk Pit Wood, and um, the, the the battalion crosses uh, the road into 
what are slit trenches. They're no more than two feet deep. They're not joined up together, and really they are, are pretty much rifle pits. And they take over from uh, 2nd Brigade, and three companies of the 8th Lincolns are facing due south towards Hill 70, and one company, uh, together with the West Yorkshires and the uh, Yorks and Lanks battalions that, which are with them, are projected to the north of Boatugo, uh, but with their left flank is completely in the air, um, and they've got the 8th Somerset uh, light infantry behind them in and around Chalk Pit and Chalk Pit Wood. So essentially they're on the front line. This, this is this is about, this is early morning on the 26th and they're due to attack around, so I think it was mid-morning they were due to go in. So what happens to them once they, they finally get to their position? And now I gather that there was significant staff problems. So can you just tell us what those were and then what happened once the zero hour, their, their time they were meant to attack uh, came? Indeed. So as soon as the men march off so this affects 21st and 24th division they're held up on the roads leading up to the battlefield so when you look at 11 core war diary which is um 21st 24th and guards division constituted 11 corps when you look at the war diary they're reporting almost immediately that the roads are congested with prisoners of war returning wounded cavalry artillery units and so it's a snail's pace crawl to, to, to get to the front. Other things that um, uh, ought to be bear, borne in mind is that they had very little information or, or any maps. They were marching on a, on a compass bearing. The guy in charge of, uh, the officer in charge of um, the Royal Engineers had calculated that en route, the 21st Division alone would be short of 39,000 gallons of water. And so we have evidence of men trying to catch rainwater in their waterproof capes because there wasn't, uh, there wasn't a sufficient supply. Haking, who was in charge of uh, 11 Corps, removed the cookers. So the men didn't have any hot food either and given that they had to cro- they had to march maybe five five to six miles to the British front line cross the British front line go across no man's land cross the German front line and this all during the by, by, by this time it was pitch black they were marching on a compass bearing it was absolutely pouring it down with rain the men were totally soaked to the skin so by the time they got to their allotted position they they were exhausted at the point of arrival so i think that their fighting effectiveness had been had been clearly significantly undermined even before they'd actually reached the, their positions from which they were going to uh, attack on the uh, the 26th of September. And the attack time was scheduled 11am. So they, they arrived, they're thirsty, tired, hungry, soaked through, um, yes. and then 11 o'clock on the morning. So what happens then? Well, prior to commanding officer of 63rd Brigade, to which... 8th Lincolns um, belonged, wanted to push on. However, he was told to wait until 11 o'clock when there would be a general advance. So he called his officers together for a meeting um, at 10.30 in which um, Harold Walter, the commander of the 8th Lincolns, he had a a shell explosion uh, next to him. So he was completely deaf. (laughs) <laughs> at this meeting and also one of the other commanding officers uh, had received uh, wounds from shrapnel balls but importantly before that meeting there'd been an assault on hill 70 by the remnants of 15th scottish division and 
62nd Brigade, which had been detached from 21st Division, at 9am. And that was important because the capture of Hill 70 would ensure that when the General Reserves went in to action, they would not receive enfilade fire from Germans occupying Hill 70. Now, the attack at at 9am by 15th Scottish Division and 62nd Brigade failed, uh, partly because of resolute defence by the Germans, but also partly because British troops were being shelled by British artillery fire. And so they withdrew um, to the bottom of Hill 70, which meant when the attack went in, at 11 o'clock, they, was, they would be subject to German enfilade fire from Hill 70. However, the Germans had rushed up reserves overnight and had infiltrated Bois-Hugo, and they uh, debouched from both sides of, of the wood and took the 8th Lincolns completely by surprise. So the three companies that were facing south towards um, Hill 70 were taken completely by surprise and enfiladed by German Maxim machine machine guns and they caused huge casualties. The remaining 8th Lincoln's company to the north of um, Bois-Hugo found that there were the Yorks and Lanks and the West uh, Yorkshires fell back on their position and then beyond them. So their, their, their trench was um, not overwhelmed by men, but was completely crammed full of men. And for those that couldn't find any shelter, and remember that the, 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 the trench was only two feet deep anyway, and now subject to German artillery, machine gun and rifle fire, uh, the men at the, to the north of Bois-Hugo um, stayed where they were and um, helped to stem the German advance. And in, in actual fact, it was this at this point that the commander of the 8th Lincolns, Lieutenant Colonel Harold Walter and I'll quote you a little piece from Lieutenant Cragg who was the 8th Lincoln's machine gun officer and he said of Walter he stood not knowing what fear was in the midst of a hot fire at close range 40 yards off calling on us to charge and just as he led us he fell so Walter was shot and mortally wounded as he uh, as he you know, took the 8th Lincolns to charge uh, the oncoming Germans. And uh, a number of other officers uh, went, well, went to uh, Walter's aid and um, they suffered because of that. Lieutenant Leonard Faulkner, for instance, um, th- th- there's a, a newspaper article of him stood over Walter's body blazing away at the Germans and then shot uh, in the heart and, and killed. And so we have, within moments, the senior officers of the uh, battalion being either mortally wounded or killed. And the um, so the junior officers are left to um, sort of uh, control and rally the men. And uh, they, they attempted to rally those Yorks and Lanks and uh, West Yorkshires that had been forced off the battlefield. And um, so to those three companies to the south of Bois-Hugo have been almost decimated. But these, the, the company to the north of Bois-Hugo uh, holds its line and uh, and acts as a shield for those men uh, behind it. And uh, we have the 8th Somerset Light Infantry, the, the, the last uh, battalion of the uh, 63rd Brigade in uh, Chalk Pit Wood, and it holding out because they've got good cover there and uh, German shells uh, whilst falling amongst them. In actual fact, um, a Captain Stromquist, I think he was um, CEO of the 8th Lincoln's D Company, is actually killed with the um, 8th Somerset Light Infantry. So as you can see, the German counterattack at 10.30 starts to unhinge the planned attack of uh, 11 a.m. 
of the general reserves, but it does go ahead. So essentially, it, it caused a local local setback in that part, and obviously other bits of the line progressed um, along with the, the general plan of attack at 11 o'clock. So what were the casualties that the 8th Lincoln suffered um, as a result of this counterattack? Uh, I mean, by the, the there was a roll call on the 29th of um, September, once the guys had been pulled out of the battle. And remember that there were originally there were 28 officers and 993 men. Um, on that roll call on the 29th of September, there were just six officers and 552 men. It's a fact that of the officers that went into action, just four of them had been kept behind as a sort of a, a cage where they were, these men were that were looking for barbed wire and sandbags because the men at the front hadn't got any. Every single officer that went into action became a casualty, either killed, captured or, or, or wounded. So actually pretty pretty heavy um, casualties all around. Again, that was that was replicated across the, across the other units. So That's right. So Again, now the, the narrative that I think emerges, or the, the narrative talked about by the general staff after the battle, um, was firstly that the, the reserves were placed too far back, and then a, a subsidiary thing came that I think Haking made an accusation that around several hundred men threw their rifles away. He stated that more than 300 men threw their rifles away. He would have no idea whatsoever how many men threw their rifles away. Haking was uh, one of those commanders that thought that um, when men are being shelled by their own artillery they always sorry are being shelled they always blame their own artillery and rather than you know supporting his soldiers he laid the blame squarely upon them he he, he originally had reported to Haig that, uh, that, that there had been some difficulties um and then when Haig sort of suggests to him that the poor march discipline in his view, um, had been a significant factor. Haking all of a sudden agreed with him, so he sort of contradicts himself once Hager sort of reminded him that there uh, was poor march discipline. But the poor march discipline was solely down to the poor staff planning, and that was down to First Army. Hager had been instructed by Sir John French to sort out all the, the staff arrangements, and simply uh, the, the staff men, the staff officers hadn't done it. Hager was Hague had gone from this is a really difficult task. I'm not sure whether we ought to approach it. To being persuaded by poisonous gas as a game changer, and then planning for an all-out break- breakthrough, and he was he was bitterly disappointed that you know it, it wasn't more than it was. Uh, in hindsight, in hindsight's a great thing. I mean, the the reserves should have been marched up to the front line and, and consolidated the front line, and that probably would have been as good as a, a decision as as one could make. But um, yeah, between Haking and Haig, they you know they they, they denigrated the performance of the um, of the Kishinew Army battalions, and this was part in part because I think they thought that they didn't do very well, even though they weren't the men on the spot, and it's quite. Clear clear from my research that there were men from the 8th Lincoln still in action at 6pm on the 26th of September. And these men were captured by the Germans once um, their their officers all to a man were either dead or seriously wounded. Their ammunition had been almost depleted and they hadn't had a drink of water for nearly 24 hours so you know there are mitigating circumstances there um plus uh, the poor staff work another thing that ought to be remembered is that the uh, 21st division were completely raw and untested 
had never ever been in action before. And there were other things that didn't help, um, such as 21st Division Artillery, which was supporting the attack, didn't have any maps. So when they had messages from the men at the front line saying, can you please shell the Germans on this coordinate? They had no idea what they were talking about because they simply didn't possess any trench maps. We talked about the performance of new army units. Now, we, now I suppose we come to the performance of the generals. Now, the debate that um, many people has that this was a key example of their butchery, bungling and general incompetence. Now, that against the idea that this was part of a learning process. Where do you um, sit on this sort of debate? I thoroughly believe that neither Haig nor Haking or Rawlinson or Sir John French wanted to send their men into a death trap. They wanted to, you know, to plan a battle that they thought would be decisive and successful. And um, I, I, I am not of the uh, of the school of uh, lines led by donkeys. I think Haig and Haking, for all of their mistakes at the Battle of Luz, actually wanted to, you know, be as good as generals as they could possibly be. But the Definitely the poor staff planning uh, hindered the reserves marching up to the front. Plus, Sir John French, of course, was hanging on to the reserves as late as possible. What should have happened is, in hindsight, this is a great thing, the reserves should have been pushed on as soon as the bombardment had stopped and the poisonous gas had been released. They should have been pushed up straight away. But um, Hagen, Haking, Rawlingson, yeah, they all had a bit of a part to play in this in in terms of we were nearly there we were nearly successful if it weren't for and but unfortunately for Haking and Hague they laid the blame squarely on on the 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 door of the 21st 24th division and uh, Sir John French one other thing that I wanted to mention Tom is about you know the reserves behaving poorly one should remember on the very field of battle of which they were supposed to have been routed Sergeant Arthur Saunders of the 9th Suffolk actually won a Victoria Cross so there were elements of it Dream bravery, um, the highest award for valour being achieved on the very field in which the men are supposed to have fled. Yeah, I mean, I mean I, I'm, you're right. I mean, your book certainly shows that many soldiers fought on. I suppose the other thing that you, you often say, if they're giving out Victoria Crosses, you know something's gone wrong. So in terms of, uh, <laughs> you know, the eight the eight, eight VCs before breakfast at the Lancashire's one at Gallipoli and things like that. But, you know, I, I think I found your book really interesting and I think it certainly changed my thoughts on, on the Battle of Lewes. Just as a final question, where can people get your book from? Um, the book can be purchased from Helion's website or from Amazon. Um, I do know that the, the National Archives bookshop also has, uh, also Hold copies. Nigel, thanks a lot for your time. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Russman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.